Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Okay, so we are doing a series on Pirkei Avos, and it just happens to be that time of year between Pesach and Shavuos when it is customary to learn a parik every Shabbos. So there are six Shabbosim between Pesach and Shavuos. So it turns out that learning one chapter of Perke Avos a week actually serves as a preparation for receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai on Shavuos. So every year before we receive the Torah, we do the Perke Avos. So it's like uh, getting ourselves into gear, getting our act together, cleaning up, elevating ourselves so that we can receive properly. So before we get to the, to the Mishnah, in preparing ourselves for receiving the Torah, which is, a, which is a significant and a meaningful use of the word, choice of word, receiving the Torah. Because to receive is, uh, is a talent. And it's one of the capacities of the soul, one of the things that a human soul is capable of is receiving. Angels cannot receive. They're messengers. They do. They don't receive. And because of that, they don't grow. Because they can't receive, they also can't grow. They can't change. The angel of kindness will forever be an angel of kindness. That's all it'll ever be. And even within kindness, they can't really increase in kindness, significantly. They have a certain scale. So they start off with whatever, a certain amount of, 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 of uh, light of kindness. It increases until they expire. But it's, it's a limited increase. So angels can't receive. Animals can't receive. They work on instinct. Only a human being can receive which means he can internalize, he can absorb, he can process and become what he's hearing or seeing or learning or receiving. That ability, the ability to receive, is part of the soul, a part of the faculties of the soul that are called the humble faculties because they function on humility. Whereas the ability to give is not so humble. But the ability to receive thrives on, on humility. The greater the humility, the greater your capacity for receiving. So uh, one of the things it says in Perkeavos is it describes a student. What's a real student? The real student, obviously, is someone who has a great capacity for receiving, to be completely receptive. So you're supposed to sit in front of your teacher with awe and with fear and with basically humility. And then you really receive. So for example, I mean, none of us has been a student very recently, except you. Uh, so we've forgotten a little bit what it feels like to be a student. But to, to truly learn would mean, for example, you're listening to a lesson. The teacher, the professor, whoever it is, is 
delivering the lesson. And he says something, and you think, yeah, yeah, that's right. See, you're not listening. You're not receptive. Because you're busy. You're evaluating, you're judging, you're, you're agreeing and you're disagreeing. You're not listening. Really listening means you don't do anything else in your mind other than listen. And after you've listened, and after you've absorbed, and after you've gotten the lesson, then when it's over, you sit back and say, I'm not sure I understood that. Or I don't know if I agree with that. Or I can't put this together with... But if while the teacher is speaking, you're saying, wait, 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 wait. Didn't you say the opposite yesterday? You're not listening. Now the teacher will say, oh, good, you see? Somebody's paying attention. That's not called paying attention. That's called being busy in your head when somebody's talking to you. So you've got another agenda going at the same time. That's not real receptivity, to be completely, totally receptive. It's harder than to give. When a teacher is teaching, it's very easy for him to get really caught up, like completely devoted, immersed in the transmitting of the lesson. That's a lot easier than for the student to be completely and totally caught up in receiving the lesson. Because to be that passive is very hard. To be that open, unless it's like the first day of school, you don't know what to expect, it's a subject you love, you're, com- you're all ears, with nothing in between. <laughs> but as soon as the stuff in between starts acting up, well, then you're not listening anymore. Because then you're not all ears. Now you're all observation. So whether you're agreeing, disagreeing, questioning, trying to fit it in, you shouldn't be doing any of that. You should be receiving. And that's why we call it receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. Because certainly when God speaks, you can't do that. You can't say, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, wait, my, my father said, what are, you doing? what are you doing? God is talking. The only thing you can do is just be all ears. But if anyone standing at Mount Sinai hears God say, uh, don't steal, and in his mind he's thinking, well, of course. You see, he's not listening. You didn't hear what God said. And you didn't hear because you were processing That's not listening. So in the counting of the Omer that we're going through, we go through the seven emotions, or the seven faculties, that need to be cleaned up before we receive the Torah. The next to the last one is the the faculty called Yisod, which is uh, translated as foundation, the most fundamental aspect of any relationship. What is the most fundamental? Give and take. Because if you say love, you know, what's a relationship? Two people love each other. But what does that mean? Love is not the foundation or the fundamental behavior of a relationship. It's a certain color within the relationship. Right? It means there's a relationship between us and we love it. And we love it. 
But not that the relationship is love. The relationship means give and take. When you say love, you mean giving lovingly and taking lovingly. So you're not, you're not talking about the fundamental. You're talking about a, a coloration, a style of give and take. You're not talking about the give and take. The fact that you can give and the fact that you can take. Compassion. Compassion means an exchange. One person has compassion for another person. So there's a give and take. Yeah, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about the flavor of the give and take. And the flavor happens to be compassion. So what's the difference between the give and take of love or of compassion? The flavor. This is vanilla, this is chocolate. But when you get to the fundamental, what is the fundamental definition of a relationship? The ability to give and to receive. Do you do it lovingly? We didn't get to the coloration yet. We're talking about the foundation. So are you going to do it with discipline? What's the difference? First, let's talk about the fundamental. Give and take. So there are people who say, you know, I, I'm not really not so good at this love thing. You know, I... That's not the problem. The problem is you can't give anything. You're not good at giving. Whether it's love or compassion or... You don't give. You're, you're blocked up. So there's no point in talking about how to love and how to arouse your love and how to feel. No, no, no. First, you've got to be able to give. Then you can give lovingly. Not lovingly, whatever. But first, you've got to be able to give. And you've got to be able to receive. So there are people who can't be loved because they won't receive. They won't absorb it. It bounces off them because they're too closed or protected or whatever. So when it comes to this attribute of Yesod, there's a male and a female version, the giving and the receiving. The giving is the male part and the receiving is the female part. So just very briefly, Yosef and Binyamin, the two brothers, the sons of Rachel, represent this element of Yesod. The fundamental element of relationship. Except that Yosef represents the giving part and Binyamin represents the receiving part. The male and the female. And the receiving is more difficult than the giving because it demands a greater degree of humility. In the giving, you've got to give everything. If you're a real giver, if you really know how to share, then you don't hold back at all. You've got to give everything. Like the teacher who, who talks his heart out because he gives everything. But in the act of giving, you exist. The definition, you are giving you're giving everything. You're going to talk your heart out. You're going to die from it. But in the process, you're, you exist. You're active. In the art of receiving, when you're completely, totally open to receiving, you've lost your identity completely. It's scary to be that receptive. And maybe that's why <clears throat> Rachel gave birth to Yosef, created Yosef. 
the ability to give your heart out, give your heart away, and she didn't die. But when she gave birth to Binyamin, she gave everything and, and she died. So in, in, in receiving, there's a greater degree of, of selflessness than in giving. And this is the week before the giving of the Torah, or the receiving of the Torah, we focus on that quality, yesod, which means the ability to really hear and do the processing later. Which, uh, one more thought on that. God was very pleased with our reaction, our, our response, when he offered us the Torah. Our response was, Naseh v'nishma. We will do and we will hear. And we, we generally focus on the virtue of saying we will do before we even knew what it was. We, read it, we agreed to do it. And we didn't even know what it was. So we said, Naseh, we will do. And then after we've committed ourselves to doing, Vinishma, and then we will hear and study and find out what. But according to what we're saying now, the virtue is in both. It's not only in the fact that we're willing to do it. Not only are we willing to do it, but we're capable of hearing it. We can really hear. So it's an interesting choice, again, an interesting choice of words. Naase, we will do. Venishma, we will hear. That's a strange word. It should say, we will do and we will study. Or we will do and we will understand. But instead we said, we will do and we will hear. Because understanding, that doesn't mean nothing. I mean, you'll understand as much as you think you should. I mean, that, but nishma means we, we are capable of hearing. We can really hear, which is receptive. We can really... Okay, now let's take a look at the fourth chapter of Pirkei Avos and see what we find there. Right at the beginning... Famous Mishnah. Ben Zayma Eimer, the son of Zayma said, his name was Shimon actually, but they call him by his, by his father's name. He said the following, or he says the following. Ezehu Chacham, who is a wise man? Answer, one who learns from all people. Ezehu Giber, who is a strong man? The answer, somebody who controls his impulses. Number three, who is a rich man? One who is content with his, with his portion. Whatever it is. Number four, who is an honored person? One who honors everybody. God's creatures. Simple Mishnah, very nice, inspiring, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> now, we are determined to find deeper meaning beyond the letter of the law. Because all of Pirkei Avos are lessons, not of decency or of uh, correct behavior, but behavior that goes beyond the letter of the law. So if we see a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, and it sounds like pretty reasonable, necessary, 
understandable instruction, then we're not then we're not understanding anything, because that's not what Perkyovos is about. You want to know what's permissible or forbidden? Look up the law book. This is not a law book. This is going beyond the letter of the law. So let's take another look. Let's use the example of who is rich. Who is rich? One who is happy with what he has. Now, that sounds so nice, but what kind of, what kind of double talk is that? I want to know who's rich. <laughs> who is rich? You tell me, whoever is happy with whatever they have, that describes a happy person. There's nothing rich about him. So he's happy. Good for him. You started off saying, who is rich? And you changed the subject. You say, okay, forget rich. At least he's happy. That's, that, that's not a good sentence. You know who's rich? A guy who's poor, but he's happy. Well, then he's not rich. He's just happy for I don't know what reason. <laughs> He's happy for no reason. Well, good for him. I want to know who's rich. So what did you do over here? Who is strong? A guy who controls his impulses. A guy who controls his impulses is, uh, is moral. I don't know, maybe he's a wimp. I, you started off saying who's strong. Where, where do you see strong here? So there's something... I mean, there's a need here for commentary. Okay. Something is not matching up. So, one of the commentaries said, who is strong? We're not talking about a person who is weak, but controls his temper. Because then you're not talking about a strong person. Who is rich? We're not talking about a guy who has no money. We're talking about rich. In something, at least. Maybe not money. But he's got to be rich, rich in talent, rich in knowledge. But he's got to have wealth. And then the Mishnah is saying, who's the real thing? Of people who are wealthy, who are rich, who is the real rich? But if you have no money, we're not talking about you. <laughs> we're talking about rich people here. And if you happen to be happy with what you have, well, good for you. We're not talking about you. We're talking about rich people. And the mission is trying to tell you, how do you measure the truth or the validity of your wealth? But if you're not rich, go look at a different mission or something, about happiness or something. We're talking here about rich, right? So here's, on, on that definition, it works something like this. How does a person get to be rich? I don't read those books <laughs> on how to get rich. That doesn't make you rich. A person gets rich because he wants. Right? Because he's ambitious. If he's not ambitious, he's not going to get rich. So what makes a rich person? A rich person is a person who's not happy. He's not content. If he's content, he doesn't go to work, and he never gets rich. Or he has a little job and he's happy. To get rich, you have to have an appetite. You have to have a desire. Which means you're not happy with what you have. That's the nature of a rich person. Even according to Torah, if you want to get rich, you have to open a bigger store than the one you have. 
Otherwise, you're not creating a vessel big enough for the greater income. So you can't say, you know, God will give me whatever he wants. I'll just have my little candy store. And, oh, you got to move the candy store downtown. You got to put, you know, you got to, you got to open the vessels. You got to create the means. So in order to get rich, you have to have the personality of a driven, ambitious, hungry kind of a guy. But if you go like that forever, you're not the really rich person. A really rich person is not a victim of his wealth. So if you, really, if you want to know which rich person is the truly wealthy guy, not a guy who's happy. A guy who's happy is happy, he's not wealthy. We're talking about what's really wealthy. Really wealthy means you are in control of those instincts or those characteristics that get you to your wealth. Right? So, being wealthy means ambitious. Now, there are two kinds of ambitious people. They're both going to get rich. Otherwise, we're not discussing them. In, there are two types. One is controlled by his ambition. And the second is in control of his ambition. So who is a truly rich person? A truly rich person is somebody who is ambitious by choice, not by instinct. So he wakes up in the morning, he says, you know, I, I, would, I would like to be rich. So he coughs up some ambition, and he goes up and he becomes rich. Goes out and becomes rich. But if a person is just driven to be rich, he'll be rich. But that's not the real thing. So the real thing is being the master of what it takes to get to where you're going. The same is true with who is strong. If you're not strong, then we're not talking about you. Even if you can control your temper. You can control your temper, you're a nice guy. But we're talking about strong. So strong means, as he brings from the verse, the proof text. The proof text for who is a strong person, it says, better a person who is patient than a strong man, and one who controls his impulses from the one who captures the city. Right? The guy who controls his impulses is better than the guy who, control, who captures the city. So the commentaries point out, we're, talking, we're not talking about two people. One who controls his temper, another guy who captures a city. It's the same person. He captures the city because he's a strong man. Now, what makes him really strong? When he captures the city, he controls himself. <laughs> because what does it take to capture a city? A certain amount of cruelty, a certain amount of hard yeah, hard drive or cold feeling. You're going to capture a city. You're going to subjugate them. You're going to beat them into submission. And you're going to rule them. Well, that's a certain type of person. Those feelings that motivate you and move you and enable you to capture the city could be controlling you. 
and you don't know when to stop. So what usually happens is a dictator, a revolutionary, overthrows the government because he's strong and determined and so on, and then he becomes the new government and he kills everybody in sight. What is that? He can't stop. His goal was to replace the government. But to do that, he had to become hard. Okay, so you've replaced the government. Now will you calm down? No, he can't stop. So now he's got to wipe out everybody in sight because they look at him cross-eyed. So who is a truly strong person? Of course, you have to be strong to begin with. And strong means the ability to overcome your enemy, to capture, to conquer, even in, in, on a smaller scale. Strong means you have influence over other people because, I don't know, you've got this power. You can get other people to do what you want. So when you use that, do you become its victim? You, don't know, you can't stop yourself? You don't know when to quit? So who is a truly strong person? The one who captures the city, and once it's done, he turns around and says, okay, now let's be nice. Enough with that. Now let's be nice. Because according to the letter of the law, once you're into that mode, you don't stop. You keep going. You capture one city, you want to capture another one. You capture a continent, you're on to the next one. You've got to capture the whole world. You can't stop. So who is a truly strong person? A person who has strength and he masters it. It obeys him. He doesn't obey it. So now the same thing is true also with who is wise. Who is a chacham? How do you get to be a chacham? You hang around the streets and ask people for wisdom? No. You go to school where all the smart people gather and share ideas. Well, at least it used to be that way in schools. Schools used to be a place for smart people. <laughs> and, they, and they would share ideas. So if you want to be a chacham, you hang around a bigger chachamim. You don't hang around idiots. So the search for wisdom has a certain appetite. And you go to where it's available. And by nature, the guy who is really a chacham and is searching for wisdom has no patience for a fool. They can't stand them. They get an allergic reaction. <laughs> there was one famous chassid. He was a brilliant, he was a brilliant man, deep and profound, and, and his children, for some reason, were not at all, you know, the elevator didn't go to the top floor. <laughs> and he, he was so... He didn't, he didn't know how to even, how, how, to, how, to, how to relate to that. So, you know, anybody else would say, uh, those kids are pretty dumb, huh? He, he didn't know what dumb meant. What's dumb? So when people would ask him about his kids, he would say, they have this strange habit. You talk to them, and they don't hear. <laughs> it must be a habit. I mean, how can you not understand when somebody's talking to you? So it must be a habit they have. <laughs> so
smart people cannot deal with stupid people by nature. So in order to be smart, you, you rise above the, the rabble, right? You, 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 you float off naturally, you gravitate towards the wise and the learned and the knowledge. How can you say that who is really smart? The guy who learns from everybody in the street. That's not how you get smart. So again, the meaning of it is conventional wisdom by the letter of the law, it's true that a smart person gravitates to smart people, smarter people. How else is he going to learn? That's by nature and by the letter of the law. If you go beyond the letter of the law, you are not a slave to your talent. You're bigger than your talent. You use it to your advantage. So if you're among wise people, you learn from them. If you're among simple people, you learn from them. You're not stuck in one mode that dictates how you have to live and how you... Beyond that, a chacham, by his nature, becomes very um, tunnel, in a tunnel vision. I just want wisdom. Give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Give me logic, knowledge. Is that all? Is that all there is to life? Is that all there is to learn? Just knowledge and wisdom? There's also truth. Where do you find the truth? Not every subject, not every science, not every philosophy carries truth. But every creature in God's world carries some truth. So if you want just knowledge, philosophy, science, then you've got a one-track mind. If you rise above your intelligent nature, or the nature of intelligence, then you go past the intelligence to the truth that it carries. If you're looking for the truth in knowledge, that you can find in everybody. If you're looking for brilliance, you're not going to find it among street people. But you'll find truth everywhere. And then finally, who is honored? The guy who honors everybody else. The guy who honors everybody else isn't going to get no respect. That's not the way it works. You get honor if you stand above the rest. If you're superior, if you're better than the rest. You're honoring them. How does that work? So again, there are those people who have this quality. It's the quality of royalty, basically. That for some reason, people give them deference. People defer to them. People admire them. They, they didn't necessarily do anything special. There's just something about them. Some royal aura that people give them more respect than they deserve or even if they do deserve it but there are others who deserve it just as much and they don't get it so there's a certain you know, majestic feel to, to certain people and they they get honored and again they can become controlled by that
It masters them. They don't master it. So the person who is truly majestic is the one who can give honor because he's in control of his royal qualities. They don't control him. Remember uh, in Schindler's List? Schindler is trying to convince the Nazi who is in charge of the, of the ghetto of the, that real power lies in the ability to pardon someone. Because, wow, that's powerful. I pardon you. Wow, that's, that's royalty, you know? And the guy thought about it and he said, yeah, that's, that's remember that? He said, yeah, that feels good. I pardon you. And he watched the guy walk away and he said, oh, the heck with it, and he shot him. <laughs> he, couldn't, he couldn't maintain that, you know? Because he was a victim of his power. Now that would refer more to the strong man. He was in control. He was in charge. He was the ruler. And he couldn't control it even when he tried. So, basically what the mission is saying is that there are four qualities that have certain emotional constitutions. And if you go beyond the letter of the law, you bring intelligence to those qualities, to those natures, and then you transcend it rather than be the victim of it. And then you are truly wise truly rich, truly strong, and truly honored. Now, if we go a little further in the Mishnah, we find another very interesting observation. Rabbi Yannai says, this is um, Mishnah 15, Rabbi Yannai says, Ein biodino, read the translation here, we are unable to understand either the well-being of the wicked or the suffering of the righteous. But in the Hebrew, it says, Ein biyodenu. It's not in our hands. The success of the wicked, nor the suffering of the righteous. So, of course, you have to translate it into English. It's not in our hands means, it's not in our hands to explain why the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. Isn't that a strange way of saying we don't understand? Why don't you say it? I don't understand. We don't know why. The Mishnah chooses to say it's not in our hands to explain. Well, you don't explain with your hands, even if you're Jewish. You talk with your hands, but you don't explain with your hands. So what does it mean it's not in our hands to explain or to understand? It's a strange expression. And where is the, in, the, uh, the insight? Where is the brilliance here? How is this beyond the letter of the law? You mean by the letter of the law we do understand? We just don't understand. <laughs> where is the brilliance here? What is this, a confession? Yes, I admit, I don't understand. So where's, where's the wisdom? I think that it's not in our hands means not that I don't understand, but that we can't understand. You don't need a Mishnah to tell you what you don't understand. You need a Mishnah to tell you what can't be understood.
So it's not within our hand. It's not in our hands. Means it's it's out of our reach. So it's not like if we try a little harder, think a little longer, we'll get there. We're not going to get there. And the reason for it is this: we don't have an explanation for the success of the wicked or the suffering of the righteous. Now we can very easily confuse this statement with the typical conventional questioning of God's justice. Where's the justice? Like Avraham said to God, the judge of all the worlds will not do justice? How can that be? This is not what the mission is talking about. When a person says, bad things are happening to good people and it's not just, okay, that's the letter of the law. That's conventional wisdom. Because conventional wisdom basically says good guys should be rewarded, bad guys should be punished. So bad things should happen to bad people. Good things should happen to good people. That's conventional wisdom. Everybody understands that. You don't need Perkei Avos to tell you that. So the Mishnah, Rabbi Yannai, is not saying I don't know why bad things happen to good people. Everybody says that. You don't have to be Rabbianai to say that. Anybody who sees suffering has the same reaction. You see a kid, God forbid, suffering. Everybody says, well, what is this? Where is the justice? So when we see injustice and we complain, that's ordinary. Everybody does that. And everybody should do that. That's the letter of the law. So when Avraham was complaining to God about destroying a whole city, he was demanding justice by the letter of the law. How can you kill the good guy along with the bad guy? It's not justice. The Mishnah is going much further than that. What the Mishnah is saying is, I don't understand the suffering of the righteous. That's very different from bad things happening to the righteous. And the difference is very simple. If I could explain to you that this suffering is not bad, it's good. It's for a good reason, it's for a good cause, something very good will come from this. Well then, you got to stop complaining about the injustice. There's no injustice. It's good. A guy is being disciplined for some misbehavior and he's really suffering you say wait a minute what's going on here uh, some guy is uh, you know has got to do 200 push-ups in the middle of the night you know in the army because he, he failed to follow an order and you see this guy suffering you say what, what are you doing he misbehaved and he's being disciplined it'll be good he'll be a better soldier for it you say oh okay no problem in that case sure go ahead I never once used this example. You walk into an operation, uh, operating theater, and you see these masked guys cutting some guy up. And if you don't know what's going on, you say, he's being mugged by masked men. <laughs> but, so you get upset, and people say, no, 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 no. He's got a serious thing that is threatening his life, and these guys are saving his life by cutting him up. You say, oh, okay, then cut him. Go right ahead. Cut all you want. 
do whatever it takes. So now all of a sudden you're not upset. The Mishnah comes along and says, that kind of injustice we can explain away. Everything God does is for the, is for the good. Nothing bad ever happens. It's all for the good. You come out stronger. From the suffering comes the goodness, and according to the suffering is the reward. It all works out fine in terms of justice. But in the meantime, it hurts. Should you be comfortable with that? Somebody else's pain. I'm not talking about your own pain. So when you're seeing somebody suffer, and you can explain the justice, you can. Now you're happy? Rabbi Anai says no. I'm not asking where is the justice. I'm asking why do righteous suffer? Even if they're suffering correctly, properly, justly. But suffering? Why? Now they use the example, if you squeeze an olive, Jewish people are like an olive. When you squeeze an olive, you get out the really good olive oil. And that's why we're being squeezed. Well, thank you very much. So now I know that God is on top of things. He knows what he's doing. And we're not suffering for nothing. We're suffering in order to get to the good oil. Now you're happy? Rabbi Anlai says, I'm not happy. It's not within my capacity to justify the suffering, even when it's righteous. So even if I can understand and explain that you squeeze the olive, you get the oil. But in God's infinite wisdom, isn't there another way of getting the oil? It has to come through squeezing, through pain. There's no painless way to get to that oil. How can that be? He's God. So when you say, see, Jews have to be squeezed because the only way to get the oil out of the olive is by squeezing it. Who are you talking about? You're talking about God. He invented the idea that you have to squeeze the olive to get the oil. Why did he do that? True, it's a fact of life. If you don't squeeze, if you don't put on the pressure, you don't get out the really good talent. Who invented this system? God couldn't find a way to get the really good talent out without squeezing? Without the pain? You have to go through gullus to get to Geula? There's a certain logic to it, but who created that logic? And why? So Rabbi Anna is saying, every guy in the street is going to complain if there's no justice, but beyond the letter of the law, we should complain even when there is justice. But it still hurts. So, I don't know, the, the Catholic Church used to, I don't know if they still do, the pain of childbirth, the labor pains, are part of the curse. God cursed Chava, because you ate from the tree, you will give birth and you will bear children in pain. So when a woman was suffering pain, the attitude was good. That's the way ahead of me. That's the curse. That's the punishment. And therefore, if anybody did anything to, to alleviate the pain, they were considered evil. God says there will be pain, and you're taking away the pain? So the midwives were condemned as witches 
and and were were killed by the by the Inquisition because they're going against the Bible. Abiyanai says that's not kosher. Even if you know that the pain is necessary, even if you can explain why the pain is there, even if you know that something good is going to come and it's worth it, it's worth it to give birth to a child, it's worth going through hours of pain. And therefore, you can stand there and watch the pain and not care. That's not nice. So even where the pain is justified, it should still disturb you because it hurts, not because of justice, because of sympathy or empathy. You feel another person's pain. So what if it's just? So what if it's worth it? So this is what the mission is saying. We're not asking why do bad things happen. Bad things we can explain. You turn it around. It's not bad. It's good. Okay, done. But a little seichel, you can always turn, you know, the silver lining to every. But then there's no, there's no empathy. There's no sympathy. There's no sensitivity here. Demanding justice is not a great degree of sensitivity. You know, every kid says it's not fair. Every kid has a sense of justice. <laughs> it's not great sensitivity or great wisdom. How come he has two and I have... Okay, justice. All right, here. You have another one? Settled? Fine. Everybody's happy. Rabbi is saying, justice is the letter of the law. You don't stop there. Go beyond the letter of the law. Even where there is justice, don't tolerate somebody else's pain. Not you can't understand... Not you don't understand it. You can't understand it. You can't accept somebody else's pain. So, Abiyanai is not confessing to an ignorance. I don't know, I can't explain why. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's telling you how you need to be. You should be incapable of tolerating another person's pain even after you've explained why it's necessary and good. And the explanation is correct. I'm not talking about whitewashing, you know, babble. You're right. You're absolutely right. It's true. This pain is necessary. It brings good things. It'll all end up fine. Can't be happy with that because it hurts. So that's the difference between asking why do the righteous suffer versus asking why do bad things happen to the righteous. One can be explained. The other cannot. can't explain pain. You can explain bad or good. You thought it was a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. It'll all end up being good. So you fixed it. But pain, how do you explain that? It hurts. No, it doesn't? Yeah, it does. <laughs> pain hurts. So, so Rabbiana is saying, that you can't explain away. And that's what should bother you. Because if you can explain that what's happening is good, and you're content, well, then you're just living by the letter of the law. You're not ready to receive the Torah. You haven't gone beyond the letter of the law. So God comes to, now we'll take another look at Avraham. God comes to Avraham and says, I'm going to destroy the city of, of Sodom because, because 
they are exceedingly evil. Good explanation. No injustice here. They are, they're not just evil. They are exceedingly evil. They deserve to be killed. Avram should have said, huh? Well, well, I guess. What is, what's he arguing about? So when he says, where's the justice? <laughs> I just told you. The justice is, they're exceedingly evil. So what's Avram complaining about? You know, if God himself had come to the Nazis and said, the Jews are really bad, what else do you need? <laughs> now you can go kill them, torture them, do whatever you want. It's all kosher now. How can you watch somebody suffer? God tells King Saul, Shaul HaMelech, Go and kill the people of Amalek. I hate them. I want them wiped out of it. Their memory should be erased from the face. Kill even the cattle. I don't want anything remaining of them. And Shaul says, I tried. <laughs> I, I almost, I almost. Okay, a few guys were left. I, I couldn't. Why not? What do you mean you couldn't? You had permission. None of you had permission. You had a commandment. You do this or you lose your crown. And you couldn't do it? That's beyond the letter of the law. So the one time in history where God actually said, wipe out a people, we couldn't do it. And we're suffering. Till today we're suffering from this. Because we, we can't do it. Not because we're afraid that it's undeserved or unjust or illegal. It's absolutely kosher. Not only kosher, it's a mitzvah. Can you imagine that? It's a mitzvah. And we can't do it. In that particular case, it was wrong to not do it. It's a misplaced compassion. But it shows that you have a heart. So that's how this Mishnah, which seems to be just a simple factual observation with no great wisdom, is really way beyond the letter of the law. We all have this, uh, you know, you hear a story, of course, hearing stories in the news has got its own problem because we're so hardened to it already. That if it's in the news, it's not real. You, know? you hear the story, a guy was in a car accident, he messed himself up, he got himself... Why? He was driving drunk. Well, huh. good for him. He was driving drunk and he wrapped himself around a tree. What, am I going to cry for him? I understand why it happened. And it's good. I'll teach him a lesson. That's not nice. That's the letter of the law. Rabbi says that is not nearly good enough. So he's taking us way beyond conventional wisdom. It's something like when the, when the Egyptians were drowning in the, uh, in the sea, the angels started to sing their daily, uh, their morning songs in the morning. And God said, how could you be singing when my creatures are drowning? 
Those are the Egyptians. They're drowning for a good reason. They deserve it. They worked hard for it. <laughs> and nobody is going to keep them from drowning. So why not? Cer certainly God wasn't saying that they're drowning unjustly. Because he's drowning them. <laughs> Can't be unjustly. And yet God said, what are you singing? What are you singing? People are drowning. So, well, you're doing it. Yeah, so? So that's it? That's as far as your compassion goes? So from angels, you can't expect anymore. You know, they do their thing. Comes morning, they sing their song. They, they don't know. So God had to stop them from singing. But a human being should, should be able to feel. Make sense? I guess in some way when the Rebbe kept screaming, you know, how much longer, why are we still in Golas? Well, doesn't he know? Golas is a preparation, you go through, you elevate the sparks, tikkun olam, yeah, 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 we know all about it. But it hurts. It hurts. So stop it. Actually, the Rebbe once said, uh, Moshe complained, the Medrash, it says that Moshe complained to God, like, why are, why are we still... I went to Pharaoh, I spoke to him already a number of times, we're still in exile? So God says, yeah, because I promised Avraham that when his children leave the, the slavery, and the, they'll come out with a great wealth, and they're, they're picking up the wealth. So Moshe said, you know what? Keep the wealth. Just get us out of here already. Enough with the wealth. Just stop it already. So yeah, Golas, you know, uh, take on a run, and we're bringing up the sparks, and we're making... And, okay, fine, forget the sparks. Let's just get out of here. Stop the pain. So we know that there's something good happening, and it's all justified, and so but But enough already with the pain. That's called a, a truly human heart. What do you think?